All right, uh, we're going to go ahead and read the uh, 57th Psalm. This is to the chief musician, set to do not destroy a michtam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge. Until these calamities have passed by, I will cry out to God Most High, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me. Into the midst of it they themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. All right, our sermon today is going to be Genesis 43, verses 26 through 34. This is called Rejoicing in the Presence of the Ruler. And uh, I would like to note, as I have for about four or five sermons in a row, that this particular sermon is leading to something, okay? The Jacob sermons were usually much smaller pictures, which pictured entire portions of human history, but they were done in little increments. The Joseph cycle of Genesis is a long, continuous story, and it's leading to a wonderful end, I tell you that. But uh, uh, I may say this later, I may not, so I'll say it now just in case I forget, but next week is a really, really wonderful picture, the cup in Benjamin's sack. If you're able to be here, please do. If you can't, watch it on YouTube. Uh, really wonderful stuff about that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the uh, verses first, though. This is Genesis 43:26 through 34. It uh, begins with, And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present, which was in their hand into the house, and bowed down before him to the earth. And then he asked them about their well-being, and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he alive? And they answered, Your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now that his heart yearned for his brother, so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went into his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. So they set him in a place by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth, and the men looked in astonishment at one another. Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as were any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. The Bible shows that Jesus was rejected by his own people, and that then the message of Christ went to the nations. However, both testaments of the Bible then tell that Israel would, as a nation, be called back to their land and that they would again build a temple in Jerusalem. That's recorded in uh, Revelation chapter 11. 
Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah specifically also speak of these things. Other prophets give hints of it as well. And Daniel 9 gives an exact timeline of what would occur and how it would happen. Daniel shows clearly that there are seven years left until they have finally met six requirements that he mentions. They are, in order, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. During that period, which encompasses much of the book of Revelation, a temple will be built. The Jewish people will go to worship the Lord without realizing who he truly is. And this is pictured in today's verses concerning Joseph and his brothers. Open eyes don't necessarily equate to eyes that see. And this is true with the sons of Israel in the presence of Joseph. And it is true with the people of Israel in the presence of Jesus. As astonishing as it seems, everything that is coming in the future for Israel has already been laid out in the past. All they need to do is open their eyes and believe in their hearts, but instead, Jesus is hidden from their eyes, even though he is right there in front of them, just as Joseph is right in front of his brothers, right at this meal, and yet he remains unrecognized. He speaks to them, Jesus speaks to Israel, but the ears cannot hear and the eyes cannot perceive. Our text verse today comes from Romans chapter 10. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is, in fact, the end of the law for all who believe. But Israel went about seeking to establish her own righteousness and has not submitted to the righteousness of God. When the temple is built, they will make offerings and observe feast days. Even though these things were fulfilled in Christ, they will fail to see what is right there in front of them. This is the journey that will continue on today as we open, ponder, and seek out the pictures and patterns in God's superior word. And so let's turn to that word now, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is fulfilling the dreams of Joseph. This is verses 26 through 28. Verse 26 says, And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand to the house. Well, this goes back to verse 16. I think it was a week ago we did this, when they met up with Joseph on the return to Egypt. He said, Take these men to my home and slaughter an animal and make ready, for these men will dine with me at noon. While he finished up the business of the morning, overseeing the giving out of bread, they were brought in and prepared for the coming meal. Now that he's arrived, the first thing they do is to bring out the present that they had brought at the behest of their father, Jacob. This consisted of six things, balm, honey, spices, and myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Even though the steward had already tried to pacify them about the money that was in their sacks and being brought into the house, it's evident that they were still unsure and they wanted to placate him as much as possible as soon as possible. The great biblical numerologist and scholar E.W. Bollinger defines the number six in this way. Actually does it in three ways. Six is either four plus two, which means man's world, four, with man's enmity to God brought in, the number two. Or it is five plus one, which is the grace of God made of, made of none effect by man's addition to it, or a perversion or corruption of it. 
or it is seven, the perfect number, minus one, meaning man's coming short of spiritual perfection. In any case, therefore, it has to do with the number of man. It is the number of imperfection, the human number, the number of man as destitute of God, without God, without Christ. If you can see this then in the gift, you can understand the parallel to modern Israel. The brothers are without knowing who Joseph is while he's standing right there in front of them. To him, the ruler, they offer a gift involving six things. It is picturing works in order to please God. But God is only pleased with faith, and faith can only be pleasing if it is in what God has done. In other words, the brothers don't recognize Joseph just as Israel will not in the future recognize Jesus. All of the gifts in the world will never satisfy God if they lack faith in what God has done. Now we have to keep remembering who's being pictured here. Joseph pictures the Lord. He has consistently through all of these sermons. The brothers picture the leaders of Israel. They still don't know who he is, but there will be a reunion between the two. And this is where we are in the Joseph stories right now. These brothers have been brought into Joseph's house. The Jews will come into the house of the Lord. Remember, the temple's going to be standing. Revelation 11 tells us this. They will make offerings, but they still won't recognize who the Lord is. This is the picture that is soon to be fulfilled in Israel. And this is not a stretch of the picture. It is exactly what's prophesied in both testaments of the Bible. A present to pacify the ruler from the sons of Israel. But a present isn't what the ruler wants or needs. The Bible is clear of the message it does tell. We are saved by grace through faith and not external deeds. Verse 26 continues, And bowed down to, the earth, to him, before him, to the earth. This is finally the fulfillment of the dream that Joseph had more than 20 years earlier. In Genesis 37, this is what it said. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. So he said to them, Please hear this dream, which I have dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Then behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us, or shall you indeed have dominion over us? In fact, though they despised this thought, and they rejected even a notion of it, it has now come to pass and this isn't just a dream fulfilled in Joseph, but a dream which is fulfilled in Jesus. There is no knee, Jew or Gentile, that won't bow down before him, as the Bible tells. But Zechariah explicitly tells us that the tribes of Israel will bow before Jesus. The day is coming when Israel will see, they will understand, and they will accept. The story of Joseph and his brothers looks forward to that wonderful time the time of separation from Joseph is close to ending and the time of exile and separation from Jesus for Israel is in our lifetime, close to ending as well. This is what's so astonishing about these sermons, right, that we're going through with Joseph. This is happening in our lifetime. All we need to do is pick up the newspaper and these things are happening right there. They will bow to the Lord without even knowing who he truly is at first. Only afterwards will they understand that the Lord that they have bowed to is the brother that they once sold off to the Gentiles. Verse 27, Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? The Hebrew says that he asked them about their peace. Then he asked about 
their father's peace, is their peace to your father. The word is shalom, and it's more than just well-being. It means prosperity, health, soundness in mind and spirit, and all of these things. It is an all-encompassing thought concerning their well-being and the well-being of the father, as he calls him the old man of whom you spoke. Verse 27 continues, is he still alive? Without even giving them a chance to reply about their shalom or about their dad's shalom, he asks if he's even still alive. Jacob was born in the year 2,169 from the creation of the world, and it is now the year 2,299 from the creation of the world, making Jacob right at 130 years old. At such an advanced age, every day is precious, and he wonders if there's still good news concerning his father. Jacob delayed in allowing the brothers to return to Egypt. Could have been weeks, it could have been months, or even a full year. And in that amount of time, Joseph was uncertain if he was still alive. But good news is just ahead. Verse 28, then they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is still alive. Joseph actually had two dreams, didn't he, when he was young? He didn't have just one. If you remember, the second dream went as follows. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now, although there is no literal fulfillment of this dream recorded in the Bible, there is still a symbolic fulfillment of it in this verse right here. Jacob sent a present with the sons for the ruler, and upon giving it to him and answering his questions, they said, your servant, our father. It's an implicit bow by Jacob because of the term servant. The dream of the son bowing to uh, Joseph sees its initial fulfillment in this statement right here. However, the ultimate fulfillment is only realized in Jesus, where the tribes of Israel, including Judah, which is the lawgiver representing the son, and the law, which was fulfilled by Jesus, which is represented by the moon, all bowed to him. The main thing in this verse is that Jacob, though being Joseph's father, is made subordinate to him without them even knowing it. And this is exactly what has come about in Israel. Christ came from them, and yet they have been subordinated to Christ. But they, to this day, don't realize it. The time is coming, though. It is so wonderful to see how these small narratives keep pointing us ahead and not far in the future, I believe. One after another, each continues to show us marvelous pieces of later history, history that may be fulfilled in our own lives. Israel is still alive and remains in good health. God has kept him for a pointed destiny. To him will come blessing and spiritual wealth when to him is revealed his greatest son's identity. Verse 28 continues, And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. Once again, the brothers bowed to their own brother without realizing it. Not only was the dream of his youth fulfilled, it's repeated. What they hated and refused to believe is done without their even realizing it. The brothers have bowed to Joseph. And although Israel still hasn't recognized Jesus, just as the brothers don't recognize Joseph, they will implicitly bow to him before they realize who he is. How? How is that going to happen? Well, the law and the prophets all testify to Jesus, and he is the fulfillment and embodiment of them. 
The Bible shows that a temple is going to be built again before Jesus is revealed to the nation. By building the temple, enacting the sacrificial system, and pronouncing the law on which they are based, they will be bowing to the one who has, in fact, fulfilled that law already. The picture is interesting, and it's exact. Our second thought today, eyes that they should not see. This is verses 29 through 31. Verse 29 says, Then he lifted his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin and his mother's son and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? To lift one's eyes from a biblical standpoint doesn't just mean to see somebody, but it is to notice them and mentally acknowledge them. Joseph has already seen Benjamin with his eyes, but now there's the mental acknowledgement of him. He has set his gaze on him in a way which had not happened before. It is both acknowledging who he is and how he is related to him, as the Bible then explains by saying, his mother's son. All 11 of his brothers are there, but only Benjamin is the son of his mother, and he knows it's him. But to feign a lack of knowledge, he asks if this is the one that uh, they told him about in the past. And then, without giving them any chance to answer, he goes on as the verse continues. And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. By speaking without allowing them to confirm that Benjamin is the one that's standing in front of him, he is implying to them that he believes them to be honest. In other words, he could have interrogated them in some way. He could have asked for some type of proof or whatever. But instead, he goes from the question to the confirmation of his belief without any hesitation. It is for them a proof that they are safe, and not only safe, but reassured as well. His words to Benjamin are, God be gracious to you, my son. The words to Benjamin are welcoming words that the brothers needed in order to feel at peace about having come to Egypt again, about having brought Benjamin, about having to face the ruler, and about having been brought into the ruler's house. Any tensions which preceded the moment are gone in this blessing upon Benjamin. Verse 30, now his heart yearned for his brother. Just imagine the emotion that he felt. After more than 20 years of being separated from his brothers, his brother, and they were just really young when this happened, the son of his own mother, he wanted to shout out who he was. It was probably an overwhelming desire, but instead he held it in so that the emotion welled up in tears. I can't help but to see the parallel of Israel today. They're back in the land. They're preparing to build this temple. They're going to be initiating sacrifices. They're going to be reading the law. They're going to be engaging in feast days that the law requires. They'll be standing literally in the presence of the Lord, not knowing that he is the one who is their true leader. And his heart's going to yearn for them just as they do these things. Joseph wanted to cry out, I'm your brother. And Jesus, he wants them to know the same. But the time is not yet. What he embodies must be given time to be tested and proven and proven true before he's revealed. The ninth chapter of Daniel, as I said, has granted seven more years to Israel to recognize these things. It'll be a time of testing and a time of difficulty, but they are coming. Joseph won't yet be revealed to his brothers, and Jesus will not immediately be revealed to his people. Instead, Jesus will certainly remain in a state of sadness as they endure what lies ahead. And this is seen in the continuation of verse 30. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep, and he went into his chamber and wept there. In order to avoid being seen in this state, what does he do? 
he turns and he heads for his chamber. The ruler of all of the land of Egypt is overwhelmed by the moment and the situation. Despite the rule and authority he has been granted, he's also a human with a heart that beats inside of him. And Jesus, despite being ruler of heaven and earth, fully God in all ways, he remains a man. The emotions of the Lord certainly did not change after the resurrection. He wept at Lazarus' tomb. He wept over Jerusalem, and he surely weeps over his people today. How difficult it must be to sit on heaven's throne and withhold himself from shouting out, It's me. I'm your brother. I can't even imagine it personally. Joseph was pained. Jesus is pained. But the time for eyes to be opened has not yet come. Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 11. He says there, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Joseph went into his chamber to weep, seeing his brother, the second son of grace. Jesus' pains and sorrows are certainly so deep as his brothers see him but fail to recognize his face. Verse 31, Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, Serve the bread. His tears were more than he could excuse as a allergy or a passing fly getting stuck in his eye. He really lost it to the point where he had to wash his face and get himself composed. After which he came out and he gave the servants their orders. Serve the bread. Bread in this context is inclusive of the whole meal. Bread being the main staple is used to represent everything else. It's an expression we still use today in uh, many parts of the world and rice in some parts of the world is used in the same way. The Lord's Prayer is a very good example of this, though. It says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. It's speaking of all of our nourishment, but it uses bread in that context. And I have to tell you, the Lord's uh, Prayer is speaking not only of physical bread. It's speaking of reading your Bible, getting to know the Lord and fellowshipping with him in that way. All right. Our third thought today, the Son of Grace, verses 32 through 34. Verse 32 says, So they set him a place by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with food with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. In the dining hall, there are at least three separate tables, or at least three areas for dining, and maybe more tables. Joseph is set by himself, certainly as a sign of his position and authority. But there's still another separation, that of the Egyptians and the Hebrews. The Egyptians dining there may have been rulers and given very high seating, though subordinate to Joseph. But regardless of their position, there's a separation because, as it says, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, around the time of Joseph, a group of shepherd kings, which were known as the Hyksos, invaded and they ruined the land of Egypt. And because of this, they held all shepherds in utter contempt. Along with this, the ancient writer Herodotus said, quote, a native of Egypt will not kiss a Greek, use his knife, his spit. Now, why somebody would want to use somebody's spit, I don't know. But Or his cauldron or taste flesh cut with a Greek knife. To them, all foreigners were unclean. And because of this, they refused to eat with them. Their detestation of the Hyksos eventually permeated so much that the same attitude was displayed towards all foreigners. Though Joseph himself is a foreigner by birth, his position dictated that the customs be upheld now, as the Bible so notes. I would suggest here that the separation in the meal, although interesting, is otherwise unnecessary unless it's telling us of a picture of something else. 
In Romans 14 and 15, Paul writes in absolute detail about things called disputable matters, including the eating of foods. He expands on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and he speaks very clearly about the eating of certain foods and what is and what is not allowed and what should and should not be done. As an all-encompassing note concerning these type of things, Paul writes in Romans 14, 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith is sin. As sin is an abomination to God and as the brothers are picturing Israel still under the law prior to accepting Christ, then they are still applying dietary restrictions which have been set aside in Jesus Christ. They are eating not from faith, but from obligation. The separation of the meal in this verse, then, is a picture of this. The temple will stand, they will participate in the ritual offerings and the meals, but they will not truly be eating with the Lord as we do during our communion. We are in perfect harmony with him at that time, but they're not. Not until they recognize and accept Christ will they be in a true covenant relationship and where their sharing of a meal will be accepted to him. They are there bowing to the Lord, they're serving the Lord, but they don't realize who he is and what he has done. They are still trying to live out the law, which Jesus Christ has already fulfilled. Verse 33, Then they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked in astonishment at one another. Without ever cluing in that their brother is the ruler of Egypt, he designates a seat at the table according to the age and status of each brother. It is his way of letting them know that he knows who they are and an extra confirmation that he has acknowledged Benjamin as their true brother as well. When it dawns on them that they're seated in this peculiar arrangement, they're absolutely astonished. The fact is that they came from four different mothers and some of them were born very close in time. And because of this, the chances of anyone guessing their age and their birth order, particularly 11 of them, in sequence, it would be absolutely unimaginable. And yet he has done it. John Wesley writes this about this verse. He placed his brethren according to their seniority as if he could certainly divine. Some think they place themselves according to their custom. But if so, I see not why such particular notice is taken of it, especially as a thing they marveled at. There's always a reason for such particular notice. The Bible does not waste words and it never introduces superfluous details. If there's one thing that's evident from the past 108 sermons that we've done, this is a certainty. What seems an exacting parallel of the arrangement of the brothers, which is found in this verse, is the sealing of the tribes of the sons of Israel in Revelation chapter 7. Since the destruction of the temple in AD 70, the tribe of each individual Jew is actually unknown. And yet, it says 12,000 are sealed from each tribe according to the list which is given right there in Revelation. Though it seems impossible to truly determine who is who, nothing is impossible for God. Joseph has demonstrated a wisdom that they didn't realize, and the Lord has all of the wisdom that those who don't know him could fully grasp. The pattern is set, and the sealing of the tribes will happen, just as the Bible records. And moreover, it's going to happen during the tribulation period. It's a period of time which is actually prefigured by the time of famine in Genesis 43. It isn't arbitrary, nor is it superfluous. Instead, it is a picture of the future which is given way, way, way back in the distant past. Verse 34, our last verse of the day. 
Then he took servings to them from before him. But Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. Of all of the scholars that I study for each sermon, only Schofield hints at what we've already noted during several sermons. Benjamin, as well as Joseph, are types and pictures of Christ. I got to tell you what, I was so happy to see someone else come to this conclusion, and they finally did it in this verse right here. Unless there is someone else who sees a type or picture that you see, it's like you're out on a limb and wondering if that limb is going to break. Because each picture is a continuous unfolding of what God is doing and what he will do in redemptive history. And so if one part of a picture is misinterpreted, then everything after it will have that flaw in it. Seeing Schofield's note here then was an assurance that the limb that we're already out on concerning Benjamin was, not, was in fact not off base. Benjamin finally takes a prominent position in the story. It has been hinted at for quite a few sermons, but now it becomes more than apparent. As Schofield says, Joseph is peculiarly the type of Christ in his first advent, rejection, death, resurrection, and present exaltation among the Gentiles, all that we've seen in these previous sermons, but unrecognized of Israel, which is exactly what we're seeing in the sermon right here. As the greater Benjamin, son of sorrow because his mother uh, Rachel named him Ben-Oni before she died, but also son of my right hand because Jacob named him Benjamin after she died, he is to be revealed in power in the kingdom. And this is exactly what we've been working towards since the introduction of Joseph. Through all of these stories, including that of Judah and Tamar, everything is continued to unfold in the exact pattern of the second exile of the people of Israel. And the culmination of the stories has consistently pointed to Israel's return, finding favor with God, the tribulation period, and eventually their recognition of Jesus Christ as Lord it is a sweeping panorama of history which is exciting for me to see has been noted by someone else. In the mentioning of Benjamin in this last verse of the day, something peculiar is brought into the story though, isn't it? It says Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of his brothers. There are six more times in the Egyptian stories that we're looking at that the number five is mentioned. So I want to read all seven of them to you. In Genesis 41, 34, it says, Let Pharaoh do this. And let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. In Genesis 45, 6, For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. In Genesis 45:22, He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. In Genesis 47, 2, And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. In Genesis 47, 24, it says, And it shall come to pass in the harvest then that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. In Genesis 40, 47, 26, it says, And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. In the Bible, and as is seen in these seven examples from the Egyptian years, the number five consistently is used to symbolize grace. In particular, it notes God's gracious act of redemption. There is the threefold mystery of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then there's the fourth mystery, which is that of creation. And that is followed by the fifth mystery, which is that of redemption. 
The pattern of creation, which is followed by redemption, literally permeates the Bible. The Ten Commandments in Exodus, when they're first given, is based on creation. Those in Deuteronomy are actually based on redemption. The book of Revelation, time and time again, uses this pattern as it unfolds its prophecies. And the same thing is seen in the created man, Adam, and the redeeming man, Christ. Now this is noted in Benjamin, who is given five times as much as his brothers at the meal. Joseph will continue to picture Christ, but he won't be revealed to his brothers until they are willing to speak out for Benjamin, the son of the right hand. Joseph grants five times as much food to Benjamin to show them that he is the favored brother, even though he's the youngest. He is a son of Rachel. And if you were here during those sermons, you know that she consistently pictured God's grace. The grace bestowed upon him in the meal, which is five times that of his brothers, is hinting at this very thing. Joseph is using an object lesson to instruct his brothers, and God is using these stories to instruct us, Jew and Gentile alike. The entire time that Joseph has been removed from his brothers, Benjamin has been there. He is the son of Rachel, the Lamb of Grace. Benjamin was called son of my suffering, as I said, by Rachel, and called son of my right hand by Jacob. This same son has always been there with them, but in the chapters ahead, they're going to be faced with acknowledging him or losing him forever. But what does it mean that Benjamin has always been there with them? How does this point to Israel of today? How could Jesus have been there with them without them recognizing it? The picture is seen in the Jew who carries the message of the church, which noted apostle is from the tribe of Benjamin, Paul. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. And what is his consistent message? Grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ to the Gentile people. And not only Paul, but all Jews who have received Christ as Lord, each is a faithful witness to the righteous remnant that has been preserved by God. This is what the brothers must defend, and this is what Joseph is actually hinting at in this meal. Christ is Lord of all. Christ is the Son of the right hand, and Christ is the Son who suffered, fulfilling the law and granting us grace, all fulfilled and pictured in Benjamin. And this is what Joseph is showing to his brothers, though they don't yet understand it. The writings of Paul have been available to the Jewish people all along. He, from Benjamin, testifies to the son of the right hand, Jesus. Israel will have to defend this truth in the future, just as the brothers will have to defend Benjamin in the verses ahead. O oh, precious grace, beautiful and wonderfully sublime, bestowed upon his children, though so unworthy of it. God's grace is past measure beyond space or time, found in such great abundance when to him they do submit. Verse 34 finishes with these words. So they drank and were merry with him. The chapter finishes with these words. There was food and there was drink and they got drunk. The word for and were merry is veyishcheru. It means to be intoxicated and it is always used this way, either literally or symbolically. But as happens routinely, translators and scholars inject personal thoughts into their theology, and they say that, of course, this one time, the word doesn't mean what it means. Why? Because these are the covenant sons of Israel, and they would never, no, never, ever get drunk, when, in fact, the brothers have already sold off one brother, 
they threw him into a pit and they sold him to the Gentiles. And then one of the sons slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and one of them slept with a prostitute, but they would never get drunk. But let's let the story be told as it's been given. The brothers had a great time. They did get drunk and they had a good meal. This is neither a verse which condones being drunk, nor does it indicate that they did anything wrong in their drinking. It is just a part of the unfolding events and life and times of Joseph and his brothers. And it points to a time of great festivity coming in Israel, probably around the building of the temple in Jerusalem. They will be in the presence of the Lord. They're going to be rejoicing. They're going to be doing their thing. And they're not even aware of the nature of the Lord in whose presence they are. Once again, though, here we are at the end of our verses, and we're left hanging about what the future holds. These brothers don't know. Joseph doesn't know. But this is what the Bible does. It keeps us in suspense as to how it will all turn out. It shows us an overall picture, but it leaves out many of the details. Like heaven itself, we only get a glimpse of what's coming, but it is coming. God has prepared a wondrous place of fellowship and delight for his people. It is offered freely to those who call on him and receive Jesus. And without him, there is no hope. Now, I'll tell you what, my daily devotional this morning that I read every day happened to mention that hell is missing in Christianity. That was the title of it, I think. And uh, the guy went into this great detail about nobody who preaches about hell anymore. And the only ones that do are the really fundamental Baptist churches, which just condemn everybody to hell every week and scare you into heaven. But uh, other than that, nobody even talks about it. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a shame because the Bible speaks of a real place called hell. Being saved does not mean you're going to heaven. Heaven is a result of being saved. Being saved means you're being saved from something. And that's the place called hell, which we are all, all heading to without Jesus Christ. That's all there is to it. He is our only hope. In him is the sure promise of eternal life. So I would ask you once again, as I do each week, to just give me a moment to tell you how you too can share in this wondrous opportunity of being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and not go off to the eternal destiny, which people are going to go to if they don't do it. God sent his son in the world, into the world to save the world. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us, we have sinned. It's in us. It's a part of us. And the wages of sin, in fact, is death, according to the Bible. There's the spiritual death which came about at the time of Adam, and that's permeated humanity ever since then. And then we have a second death, which is our human existence. And when we die, if we're not right with God before that, it's off to that place that nobody ever wants to talk about anymore. But then Paul gives us wonderful words of assurance. He says, but, but, the gift of God. Now, a gift is something you can't earn. It's something that you just simply say, I want that gift and I'm receiving it today. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You can't earn a gift. Just accept it by faith and God will restore you to him and you will be eternally sealed. You cannot lose your salvation. The book of Revelation says he will make you a pillar in his temple. That temple is eternal. And if you're a pillar in it, you're, you are going to be eternally saved. You can't lose it. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's so easy, and yet it's kind of hard because you have to give up on self and you have to say, I'm full of sin and I can't do it myself. I'm going to set aside my attempt and I'm going to call on the name of the Lord, which is what Paul asks us to do. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not maybe, you will be saved. It's done. Jesus hung on the cross to give us eternal insecurity. Is that what he did? No, 
He hung on the cross to eternally secure us in the presence of his Father. So call on him. Be reconciled to him. And you will walk forever in streets of gold in the presence of the Lamb of God. Our closing verse today comes from Ephesians chapter 3. It's the 8th verse. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ from the hand of Paul, from the tribe of Benjamin, the son of, my, the, son of the right hand. Next week is Genesis 44, verses 1 through 17. It's called the cup and the judgment. Unbelievable. I cried when I typed this. It's our 110th Genesis sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. And don't forget that second part. The Lord will do marvelous things for you. And everybody wants the good stuff. They want the blessings and the prosperity and the money. And they want a big house and a, a fast car. But he can do marvelous things through you as well if you let him. I had somebody from this church yesterday come out on the mission work with me. I think he had a good time. And he prayed with the people. Speaks another language that the people down there speak. And he, he prayed for them in their language. And I just loved it. It just made my day. I got to tell you what. Wonderful things through you if you'll just let him. This is what Christ wants. He doesn't want us just to get saved and to sit around and watch TV. He doesn't want you to come and listen to a boring sermon by Charlie. He wants you to get out there and tell people about him and be on fire for him. Tracks over there. I said it last week. I'll say it again. Paul Stoll gave us all those tracks. Fill your pocket with them. We'll get more. We've got more down here, I think. And then hand them out. You go to a restaurant. You got a business. You got friends. Hand them to them. So what if they throw it away? If one person buys one or reads one of those tracks and comes to the Lord... It was worth all of the effort. Let him do marvelous things through you. Our poem today, if you don't know this, there's a couple people that have never been here before. We started in Genesis 1-1 and we have did a poem of the entire book of Genesis and we're really getting close to having it done. This is called In the Presence of the Ruler. And when Joseph came home, to him they did bring the present which was in their hand. Into the house they presented the thing and bowed down before him to the earth as planned. Then he asked them about their well-being and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? Please, I beg you, do tell. Then they answered, your servant, our father, is in good health. He is alive still. And they bowed their heads down and prostrated themselves. In this act, Joseph's dream they did fulfill. Then he lifted his eyes to behold and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your younger brother that you told of whom you spoke to me? Is this the one? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. I have been told of you that you are the youngest one. Now his heart for his brother yearned. So Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And into he went into his chamber. There he turned and wept there with a mourning so deep. Then he washed his face and came out and he restrained himself and said, it's time for a meal, no doubt. It's time to serve the bread. So in a place by himself, him they set and them by themselves were set too. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. And all this because of the Egyptians' worldview. Because Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews. And for this there is a specific explanation. For to do so to them as Egyptians was considered an abomination. And before him the firstborn they sat according to his birthright, believe it or not. And the youngest according to his youth. Imagine that. And the men looked in astonishment at the seating places they got. Then he took to them from before him each serving... But Benjamin's serving was as much times five as any of theirs as they were observing. 
So they drank and were merry with him, a good time to be alive. Again, we see the life and times of Joseph unfold in a marvelous display of pictures of Jesus. This is why these stories have been told and why God so carefully detailed them for us. And so, let us to each story and verse pay special heed and search out the mysteries of Christ our Lord. In him is wisdom and knowledge. It must be agreed. It's all about Jesus, God's incarnate word. How beautiful and precious is your word, O God. May we always cherish it as on this, your world, we trod. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful story of redemption and grace, which it actually pictures each one of us. We were in your presence and we didn't know you, and we were living our life and doing horrific things, and there you were calling out to us, weeping over us. And then that one moment when we realized who you are, I am your maker, I am your Lord, and we called out to you and we received that precious grace which can never be taken away. Oh, we thank you for that, oh God. You are so wonderful. You are so glorious. Lord, I would ask that each person here would just keep this in their heart, would be willing to study your word, would be willing to just listen to music that glorifies you, that would be willing to speak to others with their tongues salted, that are using words that are pure and good and edifying of them, and that they would tell others about your glory and your majesty. And please do look after each person in the week ahead. They have needs, they have sorrows, they have trials, they have troubles, each one of them. And uh, Lord, please be with them and help them to just focus their eyes back on you and to lift their eyes above the, the trials and to have that fellowship with you and have all that peace and contentment that you provide. You are great. You are so great. You're a wonderful Lord. We love you. We praise you. We exalt you. We do so because you are worthy of it. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.